welcome to another podcast. This is for July 2018. This is going to be my pre-Gen Con uh, podcast. Hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody had a great uh, 4th of July. If you live in the United States, that is, or an American citizen, then I hope you had a good 4th of July and hope everybody else in the world had a happy July 4th. I've been busy watching the World Cup lately and been having a lot of fun with that and interacting with some of you folks there on Twitter and Facebook and stuff and having a good time. Uh, I, as an American, have no dog in the fight. I was actually rooting for Mexico, being as they are our neighbors to the south, uh, but they were eliminated in the round of 16, unfortunately, by the uh, evil empire Brazil. No offense given there, but it's kind of like rooting for the New England Patriots if you're an American football fan. They seem to win a lot. Uh, but I've been enjoying it. I enjoy the World Cup every four years. That's about the extent of the soccer that I watch. But anyway, I'm excited to jump in. Uh, speaking about Twitter, I posted a poll, which a couple hundred of you at this time looks like you uh, voted in. It was super close. I actually voted to either do the topic, which I'm going to talk about, which is my sort of top 10 strategic games with narrative. And I'll explain that in a minute. And versus doing the top 10 anticipated games from Gen Con. Now, it was a lot closer. It started off uh, when the poll kind of first started. The top 10 narrative strategic games was way ahead. And then now it was like 50-50 at the end, pretty much. Uh, So what I'm going to do is compromise. I'm going to rattle off the five anticipated Gen Con games in like two minutes. And then we'll jump into the main topic. I am going to do some kind of podcasting thing at Gen Con. I will be attending. And so I'm going to do some interviews and stuff and take some pictures and things and then do more of a a comprehensive kind of podcast after the fact Uh, and just kind of, you know, you know, give a general overview and go over the games. And then if you're watching the podcast on YouTube, then I'll have those pictures up and running uh, as I'm talking as well. So that should be pretty fun, kind of a different... uh, Uh, take and not quite as much work as doing you know like 50 to 60 videos and all that stuff like I used to do years ago so I'm looking forward to doing some of that that should be fun in sort of gameplay news I've been playing a lot of older games and stuff Great Western Trail, Kalis and a bunch of old games that I like to play Uh, the new games that I've been playing I can't really talk about right now so it's kind of weird there's embargo stuff going on with a couple of them Uh, so that's unfortunate but that's how it goes in terms of timing Uh, I have been playing the new edition of Age of Sigmar. I just put up a video for kind of an intro to the second edition for Age of Sigmar, I think last week at the time of this recording anyway. And I will be having a battle report coming out. Uh, Actually, that might come out before this or right after this. I'm not really sure in terms of when I get time to edit everything. Uh, But uh, it'll probably come out after this, I think. And uh, so that, that'll that be cool. I haven't done a battle report yet, and so I'm excited for that. I've had a chance to play a full, like, 1,000-point game uh, with the models that come in the uh, the base Soul Wars box and added some of the, like, little bling and stuff you can add to make more narrative and uh, add in some, like, command points and special abilities and all the kind of nooks and crannies and stuff that you can add there. Uh, so that's kind of a general summary of what's going on. And so let's go ahead and jump into my top five anticipated games at Gen Con. I'm just going to rattle them off. I apologize. I don't want to spend too much time on them, but these are definitely a strong five. Um, I was thinking of doing my top 10 list and it kind of honestly tapers off after these five pretty drastically in terms of like the level of my enthusiasm for them. 
And the other thing is it's like about a month, a little bit less than a month before the con. So we're going to see more announcements. Uh, FFG usually has some surprises and some things they announce like right before and then right at the convention. Uh, I know some other things, like I mentioned about the embargo, some stuff that's going to come out that I'm excited for, that I already have, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's kind of hard to do that right now uh, at this time and given kind of my schedule with everything. So it's real tricky to do the really good job of an anticipation thing. So I think uh, we're in good shape here. So let me just rattle off the top five. So number five would be the Great Western Trail expansion called Rails to the North. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, that's come out recently. Really enjoy that still. I think it was my favorite game from two years ago, whenever the, it came out. Uh, really enjoy that. The group really likes it still, the gamer group. And so any kind of cool little addition, you know, I think I'm kind of ready for that now where we could add something to it. We've played with like, you know, multiple random buildings and all that kind of stuff. So I've played it in a few different configurations now. And honestly, I could, I'd be fine without an expansion, but I'm just curious and interested to see uh, what's going to come. So that's number five, Great Western Trail, Rails to the North. Uh, number four is called Yellow and Yangtze. This is a Reiner Knizia game, and it's billed as Tigers and Euphrates 2.0. So we had Tigers and Euphrates, which came out in the 90s. It's definitely in like my top 10 games of all time. And this is kind of a new take on it. I think it's got like hex tiles instead of square tiles and all kinds of stuff. So I'm a little bit nervous about it because I really like Tigers and Euphrates. And from what I've read, this looks like a little bit less brutal, uh, which in terms of Tigers and Euphrates, I think that might turn me off a little bit. But when he's done that with some of his other games, I've actually kind of liked some of his less brutal versions of his games. Like he has Ra and then Razia, which you can't really find. Uh, and I actually like Razia more than Ra, although I'm kind of an odd duck in that way. But yeah, so I'm interested in this one. It's Yellow and Yangtze, and that should be being released. I'm not sure it's going to be for sale, but they should have definitely demos and things happening. I think it's for sale, though. Uh, number three is from Portal Games. It's Detective, and uh, this is an interesting... Ooh, it's hard to explain. Basically, there's going to be a case, uh, or multiple cases, that are like Sherlock Holmes consulting detectives, sort of. But you'll be able to like use your phone and research things on the internet and Google search stuff to sort of find out specific things that are related to the case. And I talked about this before in the past, but I think maybe is one of my anticipated games of this year in 2018. Uh, so just a very kind of different game out from left field. And so it's a risk and it's a, you know, it's a, hopefully has some innovation and things like that in terms of what you can do in terms of the gameplay. Uh, some of the reports I've heard of from folks that have demoed it at cons and things uh, say it takes about three hours to play, but maybe that's just for your first play. Uh, but I'm, I'm into this. I think this could be a different kind of thing. I, I like those escape room games. Uh, and so this seems kind of in that same vibe, kind of a deduction game, a puzzle solving game kind of thing, but with a twist. So that's Detective from Portal Games. Uh, number two is Century Eastern Road. So if you remember, Century Spice Road came out last year from Plan B Games and the same designer, Emerson Matsuuchi. And this is sort of the follow-up in the trilogy. And you can actually combine this Century Eastern Road with Century Spice Road and make sort of like a mega game out of it. And then there's going to be a third game next year that you can combine and, and you can play them either separately or combined or whatever. Uh, so I'm excited about this. Uh, Century Spice Road has been one that's come back out a few times uh, and then played, you know, multiple times at at, uh, at work and then also at the game group uh, and stuff like that. So 
I'm excited to see this. This looks like a little bit more meat on the bone in terms of the gameplay, but very much in that same vein as Century Spice Road. So that's Century Eastern Road. And finally, number one is Forbidden Sky. And this is the third, speaking of trilogies, uh, Forbidden Island, Forbidden Desert. These are co-op games from Matt Leacock, who did Pandemic. And these are typically more family-oriented, simpler uh, co-op games that are have very nice components from game right games and they come in these these tin boxes and stuff and there's usually tiles and things and so this is the follow-up and i still have forbidden island forbidden desert and that's ones that we break out here uh in the family from time to time still and uh and they're just fun little games they're very simple straightforward direct uh but they they do the trick and i really just it's just a fun thing and so I'm definitely looking forward to sort of the next uh, sort of iteration of that. And the graphics and pictures and everything of the art uh, make it look seem uh, really nice. So I'm definitely looking forward to Forbidden Sky. And that's coming from GameRight and Matt Leacock. So that's kind of the quick and dirty intro. And I'm under 10 minutes so far, so that's good. So I can take a little bit of time here with the uh, top 10 strategic games with narrative and so sort of the criteria it's very specific and so i'll try to explain that criteria in more detail so you get a sense of where i'm at so the idea is that at the core of each of these 10 games is very much a strategic uh feel it's it, there's going to be less randomness there's gonna, not going to be really any kind of like a heavy ameritrash thing although some of these will certainly dip into that a little bit uh but it's not going to be stuff that you would normally associate with a kind of a narrative arc and that's kind of the other side of this coin is yeah there's certain games that have really good themes and they really work well with the theme but in terms of like a beginning middle and end and like a storytelling kind of idea where things change and evolve and sort of morph uh, through the course of the gameplay that's kind of what i was going for here and i actually had uh, a few emails and things and geek mails of people requesting this kind of thing. And so I kind of settled in this sort of ballpark of, you know, heavy concentration on the strategy side of it. And then, um, you know, also with that narrative arc over the course of it. So I'm going to talk about a couple of things that didn't make this list that I kind of thought would, but then I sort of was a little bit tighter with my criteria, like I said. So the first thing is one game that I have is the Game of Thrones board game. And I wanted to have something that didn't have any IP association that was related to like TV show and movies. One of the games has an IP, but the IP is another game IP, if that makes sense. I don't want to spoil it. But Game of Thrones or like Sons of Anarchy or any of those Gale Force 9 games like Firefly, you know, not that uh, Firefly is really a strategic game, uh, although it does have strategy bits to it. Uh, I wanted to kind of stay away from the IP because I, I just, not for any reason I think it's right or wrong to include games with IP, but I wanted to have a game that sort of was a game first, if that makes any sense. Uh, just because in my own head, my sort of association with the IP might be filling in gaps in the theme that maybe doesn't get driven out of the mechanics, even though there's a huge, you know, kind of gray area and it gets fuzzy there. So no Game of Thrones. <laughs> or nothing, nothing with an IP. Although the Game of Thrones board game would be one that I would put high up on the list. There's some decent strategy in that game for sure. A little bit of luck and stuff with the card play and some of the events that come up. 
uh, but heavy strategy, heavy negotiation. Uh, also, a couple that I thought would make the list, but again, the criteria kind of iced it out, uh, was Caverna and Great Western Trail. Now, I do think there's a lot of theme in Caverna and Great Western Trail, but there's a couple of things that uh, sort of put me out of the theme. And Caverna, it's the worker, the way the worker placement spaces work in that is, you know, like if you go to the spot where you can make new workers and make babies and nobody else can do that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. There will be some other games here that have a kind of vibe like that, but it, to me it makes more sense that you are taking it and somebody else can't use it in terms of the theme. Uh, but Caverna, I would say, would be very close to making this list, and I, I would think if I wasn't trying to be so strict, it would definitely make this list because I... You have a narrative arc with that where you have your cave, you sort of you can visually see that cave evolve, and you add on rooms and all that stuff, and then you go on quests and you level up, uh, you know the the knights and stuff like that in there, and you level up kind of your quest level um, and that kind of thing. So it does have a narrative arc where at the end of the game it's very different looking than at the beginning of the game. And then Great Western Trail for some reason. And this is usually the strategy I use to when I win the game is if I try the building strategy and I put buildings out. Although it's not really clear to me, and it's just it's just just it's just a personal thing. I, I'm not trying to say this is a fault at all with the game, but it does sort of take me out of the theme that you're kind of running this trail and delivering this cattle, but then you're also taking time to establish uh, different buildings and things along the route from where you can get different actions to come out of it and then maybe drive a little bit of income as players move through them. I think it works great in the game, but I just not really clear like what? I thought I was, you know, delivering cattle. Do I work for this larger company that has multiple interests and I'm driving cattle and then I'm also establishing other kind of businesses along the side to make money, you know, sort of uh, ancillary to this whole marketplace. I don't know. For some it just kind of puts me it it just separate. There's not a very clear connection. Uh, in that mechanic, thematic-wise, uh, there. And now I think it. I think it's clear, and makes sense, but it just, it. I just can't quite draw that line there. But you know, like I said earlier, I still love that game. So that's kind of some stuff that's not in there. Oh, the other one is um, I would include would be a lot of Carl Chuddock's games like Impulse, uh, Innovation, and Glory to Rome. Uh, mostly like Innovation, I think, is the one that has the most theme, but it's so chaotic that well it's hard to call it a strategy game even though i think it is a definitely a learned sort of skill that you can get once you know like all hundred cards that are in there in terms of evolving your civil civilization in that game but there's a lot of chaos and things and sort of like leaps of logic if you will thematically to move from one place to the other but i still wouldn't i just wanted to call that out as i thought it's very uh very strong thematically as well as strategically uh but the narrative arc part of it the direct sort of storytelling beginning middle and end gets a little bit wonky sometimes okay so that's all the stuff that's not on the list <laughs> and let's just go to my number 10 and this is going to be actually airlines europe and the reason this is number 10 is because i can't tell you how many times i've played this i'm going to guess around 20 or so um we play this a lot with the family i've played it a decent number of times with the game group but after a while, it really sort of became clear uh, how important the map itself was. Because in Airlines Europe, you have a st you're establishing sort of ownership in different airlines. 
and you're sort of it's almost like a stock market game but it's very very simplified and it becomes almost like a card playing game uh, it's by the designer of ticket to ride but it's almost like if you took ticket to ride and then smashed it with a sort of stock co-ownership kind of thing where you don't you're not really a company but you will own pieces of the company but there's no bidding or auctioning of company shares or anything like that it's just a card game uh, but once uh, the map and sort of the design of the different value spaces of the map and the different routes and how they relate to the different airlines and how that works you have a really interesting kind of narrative arc that happens when you have certain airlines that were kind of typically will shoot out and establish their routes very quickly because they're very uh, lucrative early on and then you have sort of more airlines that are more like the slow game and then those will kind of evolve and then some of those key spots those kind of key intersections of the different routes and how they work on the map uh, will come into play and then you have kind of an evolution with the uh, the main kind of abacus airline that is off to the side does you don't even actually have uh, planes that you put on the map for and how that comes uh, more and more into play and it's going to vary actually uh, game to game but there's a real strong sense of beginning middle and end now the theme itself is you know it's pretty abstract i mean you're, you're not actually doing the the auctioning and the buying and the selling of the shares or anything it's simple card play and set collecting which is all shares stuff is really really that's all that is um so the the themes part is abstract but the the storyline and the arc of the game is definitely solid and definitely there and i did not see this the first you know i don't know 15 times i played it i was just strictly playing it in terms of the game playing collecting and watching what other people were collecting and all that kind of stuff and trying to sort of piggyback off of others um but after you sort of play it a lot then you get a real strong sense of that and, and then the metagame will kind of appear especially if you play it with the same people a whole bunch. So there definitely is a, a, a strain that kind of runs through that game. So that's number 10, Airlines Europe. Very tentative, uh, but I just wanted to put that one in there for sure. Now, number nine is Terra Mystica. And I actually picked this over Gaia Project. I actually like Gaia Project better as a game. I just It's a little bit more like refined and fine-tuned as a design, I feel, for me. And I kind of get into the space theme a little bit. But when I've played Terra Mystica, I get a real sense of these civilizations because you can have like the merfolk and the, the dwarves and the mountain people and all that stuff like that. And they all kind of evolve and grow their little kingdoms in a very uh, organic way, in a non-confrontational way, which to me actually adds to the story just a little bit. It's just the, the, you have like these, these, these uh, natural sort of tribes that are evolving and these special, uh, very unique uh, you know, races in this fantasy world that have very different unique powers uh, that they are doing. And you, it's interesting because I always felt like the magic of the different energies of the different races uh, really uh, were expressed very well in the gameplay and the mechanics and how that kind of uh, you know, grows and how you sort of you start to sort of build up almost like combos, not really combos in this game, but your magical energy kind of exponentially gets a little bit better. And then, you know, you start to move the magic around in these little magic dishes, and then that'll activate special abilities and stuff like that. And that'll sort of commingle with some of the abilities that you unlock by placing your different buildings on the board and growing your kingdom. But I always felt this had a really strong uh, narrative arc. Like I said, a beginning, middle, and an end. And you can see the approach of the finale kind of coming 
as you play through the different course of the game. Now it's abstract in terms of the way that you score points and, you know, you try different combos and things, uh, but that's just kind of a way to kind of drive different permutations and strategies as you kind of, each game will have different sort of end game and end of round bonuses that you're trying to go after. But it's a real strong, you got, like I said, arc over the course of the game. So that's Terra Mystica. And then number eight is a game from Reiner Knizia, and this is Samurai. And actually, I thought, oh, I'll do Tigers and Euphrates, because I do get a, a real strong sense of setting in Tigers and Euphrates and atmosphere in Tigers and Euphrates. Tigers and Euphrates always felt to me like an old game that maybe has actually been around a lot longer. I mean, it's an abstract for sure, and you have the different colors and you're growing them, and it feels like you're playing you know, some old game from Mesopotamia. Now, that's where it's set, but it feels like this game might have even been invented there and you have these different colored pieces and stuff. Although the design is too refined and, you know, streamlined to have been something I think that was created, you know, thousands of years ago. But it always just kind of felt like that to me, that it, it could have been something that was designed a long time ago and withstood the test of time for some reason. And I think the theme of it actually lends itself to that. But there's not really... There's sort of a narrative arc as, you, as your kingdoms kind of grow and then you you know you start to sort of take over the kingdoms and you sort of swap out control and ownership and move your leaders around and stuff like that. But you're just kind of doing area control and pushing stuff around and trying to you know finagle and maneuver. Now with samurai, to me there's actually a real strong uh, narrative arc here. Uh, and I think of a lot of times I think of it as sort of the electoral college. Uh, played out in abstract. Now, if you're in the United States, you probably know what the Electoral College is, is that's how we elect our president. And you you don't get them, whoever gets the most votes uh, doesn't necessarily win the presidency. That's happened twice in my la- lifetime. Uh, but you have to win a certain number of states. So if you win the state of Florida, you get like, I don't know, 27 electoral votes. If you win the state of Montana, you get three and so on. And then whoever gets the 270 electoral votes then is elected president. So you can get more votes. So let's say in California, 3 million more people voted for somebody else and, you know, all this stuff. So the actual vote count doesn't really matter in terms of electing the president. And that's kind of how the game of Samurai works, because there's three different types of uh, sort of influence that you're trying to get. You're trying to control the farmers and the farmers are represented by these kind of like little rice field tokens. And then you have the Buddhas, which is maybe like the religious influence, and then these kind of helmets, which is maybe the military influence. And you put out these tiles around these different cities trying to capture those tokens, which are randomly put out on the board. So in one city, you might have a rice field and a helmet. So in that field, you're trying to, in that city, you're trying to control kind of the farmer's vote in that city, and then the helmet demographic in that city, if if you will. And then each player has different tiles that will influence Uh, those different uh, sort of demographics, if you will. And you have a bunch of tiles that will give you points towards the helmets and points that will give you points towards the uh, rice fields and so on. And then once a city is surrounded completely in those little hexes that you, you know, have around each city, you're going to total them up. And whoever has the most uh, rice points will get the rice field and whoever has the most helmet points will get the helmet. And it could be the same player. Uh, And you have tiles that are like neutral. They're like little samurai tiles. And those will give you points towards whatever you're trying to surround. And I'm not going to break down the scoring because I don't have it memorized off the top of my head. I always have to read it out when we play it. But basically, if somebody has the most 
of two of those figures, doesn't matter if they have the most total figures, but let's say they have the most rice fields and the most Buddhas, then they win because they have sort of the most electoral votes. You need two electoral votes out of the three to take control, even though somebody might have every uh, helmet figure and have a t more total figures than you. So you're trying to position yourself in a, in a way to have the most influence. And this is set in feudal Japan. And from the little bit that I've read, I've read some of this, something about this time period, uh, mostly through fiction, but uh, it's historical fiction. And it, there was a lot of kind of maneuvering and stuff, as there would be in any feudal society, of you know different sort of influences and things of folks that are trying to you know hold sway. And maybe you're trying to become Shogun or something uh, back during this time period. I don't remember exactly if there's even a blurb that says what your goal is, but it feels like you're trying to you know win influence and kind of win in an election, so to speak. Not necessarily an election in this case, but you're trying to be the most powerful person out of your little crew. It could just be that you're like merchants and stuff, or you are a sort of a school of, of samurais or something that you're trying to uh, become the, you know, the number one samurai uh, group in the, in the country at that time. But you can see kind of an arc over the course of the game, back to the original point of, okay, so Billy's collecting the Buddhas and then Francesca's, you know, collecting the rice fields and so on. And then, you know, you, you start to sort of tick and tack and evolve that. And then slowly that board just kind of gets eaten up. And you can see uh, sort of a natural evolution uh, and a visual evolution of, of where all the influence was placed. And the other thing that's interesting about this is you, once you play the game a few times, you'll realize that everybody has the exact same set of tiles that they can use. And so there's some that are like the big number four for the rice fields. And once they use that, you know that they've spent all of that sort of political capital in that particular area. And now you're safe to maybe go over to another area on the other side of the map and then use your four value rice field there. But then there's other ones that'll like allow you to swap things around. So all that kind of stuff is floating around in your head as you're playing. And you're trying to say, okay, well, Billy's used this, uh, but he's kept that. Has he drawn that yet? Cause you kind of draw a hand. And then you, you kind of like are trying to juggle all those possibilities in your hand and try to be very sort of sneaky in a way and play in such a way that you don't commit. And that's really the thing is once you sort of lock in and commit, then, you know, the turns are going to go around the table and you don't want to leave yourself a position where you've left that one opening and you let somebody else complete all of the tiles around the city. And then they get to kind of dictate and say, what's going to happen there. You want to be the one to dictate that. So you're kind of playing very hands-off as much as you can without kind of wasting your turns either. And so just that that mechanic there of trying to sort of play every angle feels very much like a, a, an election would. You know, like a politician would try to play, you know, every kind of angle that they can to try to garner all those votes and all that support. And just the way you kind of see that visually evolve over the map uh, is really cool. And again, it's very abstract. You're just putting little number tiles next to little abstract pieces and trying to collect, you know, majorities in two of them. And there's all kinds of crazy tiebreakers and stuff. Yeah, I think that has a really interesting narrative arc in terms of where you're at at the beginning of the game and then where you kind of progress in the middle and then the end of the game. So that's Samurai. That was number eight. Uh, now, number seven is interesting because uh, this is Eminent Domain and this is uh, this is a deck builder. 
And I thought deck builders are very good, or they can be very good at telling a story. Uh, one that I've reviewed recently was Thunderstone Quest. Now that is sort of strategic. There's there's definitely some randomness in there. There's definitely some strategy too in terms of the, kind of the strategies that you pick in terms of which sort of races and classes and things that you buy in this fantasy world to try go in and be the best uh, dungeoneering party and killing everything. It has a very cool story too, but I, I wouldn't really classify it as a strategy game. Now, Eminent Domain is very much a strategy deck builder because you don't really have a lot of randomness in that game other than you shuffling your deck and then redrawing the cards. Uh, but you have a lot of control over the cards that go into your deck. There's like five basic simple ones that are like politics and scientific research and warfare and colonization. There's like five of those cards in the middle. They're all very basic cards. And then you have a giant stack, a huge amount of stack, especially if you have the uh, expansions of cards that you can buy. And laying them out is actually a chore in some ways. Uh, you've got to sp spread open some uh, space on the table. If you don't know what the cards are, once you do, you can kind of just leave them in a stack and let people riffle through them. You evolve sort of your empire. And the game was designed, the designer is stated he wanted to kind of make Twilight Imperium the deck building game. And he'll even say that he doesn't think he quite succeeded at that. But, you know, he gets close. Like, he's in that ballpark of this kind of space, sort of, not really a 4X thing, but the space empire. You kind of grow the empire and evolve it in certain ways. And you can really sort of focus down your deck to be very warlike or very colonial type of thing where you more peacefully settle the planets or really focus on research and then getting some of those technological upgrades and things like that. But over the course of the game, your deck is going to evolve. And your deck kind of tells your story uh, because in, that, in this game you can pretty easily sort of prune cards out of your deck so you can destroy cards or trash cards in the deck. And that really, again, focuses that narrative arc of the game where you have the beginning, you kind of can do a little bit of everything, nothing very well, and then you might focus down one or two paths and really stick to uh, your empire as being of a certain nature. You can, Like I say, you can be warfare or very science-oriented and stuff like that. And even with some of the expansions, you can get you can be more political-oriented and things. Or focus on uh, resource generation and be, be more economic. Uh, so in that case, and I think with a lot of deck builders, and I just really, I picked Eminent Domain. Uh, it's one of my favorites. And I think it does a good job of this. And it's very heavy on the strategy side versus the random or the tactical side. And so, I, But I think you could throw a lot of deck builders in here. Dominion you could throw in here as a narrative a bit because you kind of you evolve your little domain and you have your domain has like a focus of, of a certain kind you maybe you, uh, you you focus on the smithing and the villagers it's been a while since I played <laughs> Dominion somebody use all the base cards or you get some of the other cards from the expansions you do like more magical stuff or or uh, tricks with like the marketplace and gold generation and stuff like that uh, so you have you know again a really solid beginning middle and end uh, I think especially with uh, Eminent Domain, I'd say another one that you, which has been years since I played this, would be Core World. It's a similar theme uh, where you have this progression towards the kind of the center of the galaxy. And you can see a real uh, clear progression and sort of path and story element. So that would be number seven, Eminent Domain. Uh, we're going to go into number six here. And this is going to be uh, CO2. This is Vital Lacerda. And I would say his games have a very strong strategic element for sure. They're usually big and complex. 
Uh, I don't know that all of them have a strong narrative component, but I think they all have a very strong thematic component for sure. Uh, Gallus and Vinos, all those heavy and crunchy mechanics are there for a reason, and they um, sort of help describe the theme and kind of describe some of the different interactions and things that are going on. I think the mechanics do a great job of that. But the one that has an interesting sort of narrative arc is CO2. And this is one where you have the kind of the global warming crisis come, come to a head. And uh, at the beginning of the game, it's you're very much in danger of cutting everybody losing, which is a possibility. And then that's, at certain certain point, you're going to sort of overcome that and then try to win the game. And what you're actually trying to do in this case is actually sort of, in some ways, exploit the crisis for the benefit of your country. And it's, I don't want to get too much in the mechanics, but it's, you have these sort of elements where you can sort of piggyback off of others, uh, product development and these different sort of projects and things and in different countries will have different sort of uh, market caps of this uh, a carbon credit. It's sort of a carbon credit idea if you're sort of familiar with some of the politics around global warming. One of the solutions that isn't really talked about anymore, but and it's kind of weird, but is this idea of a, of a carbon credit, like certain countries that pollute more than others, like the United States and China. That varies, you know, as the years go by, but, uh, you know, you have sort of a carbon credit and you sort of buy and sell these in the game. And then you have sort of projects that are sort of morphing the coal and the oil supported uh, energy technologies into more what they call green technologies. And so as that sort of evolves into the game, you have your kind of initial crisis and everybody's going to kind of, you're kind of forced to work together right at the beginning. But then after a while, you're being very manipulative and conniving in a way and really trying to exploit the whole thing for your benefit so you can win the game. But again, it's, it's funny because you kind of see this, you know, sort of wash of this change of technology from kind of quote unquote dirty technologies to the more green technologies. And you see sort of these sort of, uh, almost like little crises uh, pop up and then have to get tamped down. And, uh, and then sort of the market manipulation as people kind of, kind of come in and out of different markets, start new projects and things. But it's a really strong, again, narrative arc of everything I just talked about, you know, the market, the, the crisis and exploiting the crisis and exploiting each other and piggybacking off each other and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so it's a very interesting beginning. There's a distinct, in this case, beginning, middle, and end uh, in, in the case of CO2. And that would have been our number six. And next we're going to get into uh, the top five. And to me, these, these are really strong on the case of, yes, they're very heavy uh, on the strategy side of it. And they're not all necessarily heavy strategy games, but they're heavy on the strategy and they have a very, very strong narrative feel to it. And number five is my favorite game of all time, uh, which is Kalos. And Kalos, in this game, you are helping to build this castle. So the main goal is that uh, King George, whatever the heck his name is, he wants you to have, uh, he wants to have a castle. He wants you to build it. So you build it, and there's a couple of like little workshops and things on the board. And you go there and you collect goods and you you send batches of goods to the castle and the castle slowly gets built up. But part of that is this village basically springs up and this it evolves into this town and then into the city uh, going down this path visually on the board uh, below the castle. So as sort of a byproduct of this, think of this huge government project, you know, this new industry has, has sprung up 
and then all the sort of supporting service industries of this driving castle spring up. So you have like churches spring up and lawyers and architects and all these different buildings and industries and, and professions in support of this king building this castle. And so that's an interesting kind of evolution of what happens because you can actually focus, uh, you can't ignore the castle building, but you can definitely focus a strategy on not doing that. And so you can be more about building up the village and the city and kind of chasing after some of these sort of end game buildings. So you evolve these, you know, these wooden buildings that are very rudimentary, then you evolve into stone buildings and you have some more uh, interesting sort of advanced technologies or professions that come out. And then you you eventually establish like residences that are going to give you income. I assume there's like giant apartment buildings or housing projects. And then you have uh, these blue buildings, which are worth lots of points and favors and which give you extra cool abilities and extra points on top of those. Uh, so this is a very visually interesting game to see it evolve. You start with a castle and these like very rudimentary little pink buildings that do, don't do a whole lot. And then down this path grow these more and more evolving buildings. And then the castle kind of starts to fill up. You put these little house markers in the castle and you can see the batches being delivered. So you can see this, this village become a town and maybe depending on how the game works out, evolve into what looks like a city of some sort. And so that's a very interesting kind of narrative arc. You got the beginning, the middle and the end, and you have people sort of, uh, you kind of find your specialty and your focus in terms of how the the game is going to evolve for you in terms of your strategic focus. Because you can be very sort of castle oriented and chase after resources and be focused on the castles and then also like getting king's favors, which allows you to do some of the stuff, uh, get resources and get extra buildings out without really focusing on building new buildings. So you can sort of short circuit uh, a lot of the sort of you know, very sort of linear path of build this, which allows you to build this, which allows somebody else to build that and so on. So you can kind of tick and tack between kind of both approaches in a way. And there's a little nuances in between that in terms of actually trying to win. But I think that's just a really kind of a fascinating kind of thing. And it really just, it, to me, it sells up the whole like medieval thing. You know, there's, you always see these board games set in the medieval era, the Renaissance era. But to me, this is very much like a grounded in like the, uh, you know, the actual existence of this area of Kalis or this, you know, any sort of medieval town or city or village that evolved. You had somebody coming in with this idea of like, I'm going to establish my kingdom or my castle here. And then bam, a civilization or whatever city pops up around it, supporting it. And I think that's an interesting concept because, you know, like, why do people settle down in a spot and do things? Well, because there's a port or there's a good farming or, you know, whatever. So this is kind of just an interesting thing. Of like, hey, this dude, this likely a jack wagon, you know, this king, he wants his castle. Like, okay, I like to work. So I'm going to go to work and then build a castle. And then look at all this other cool stuff that's going to happen because of that. So I like that whole sort of idea there, this, this industry and people kind of working together uh, but trying to compete and there's also the bit where you can like manipulate and bribe the provost sort of screw people over they're sort of like the uh, you know the special interest the lobbyist you know or the politician that you have to sort of uh, bribe and convince to do uh, what you want to do uh, anyway so that that's a very interesting game in terms of like all of those elements that I talked about uh, coming out of the strategy and really uh, the, the mechanics, and everything kind of breathe life into that world. And you can, you can see again, visually that world appear. 
So that's number five, Kalis. And not dissimilar, uh, number four is London. Now this is published by Osprey Games, the second edition by Osprey Games, designed by Martin Wallace. And this is a similar theme. You're trying to basically rebuild London after uh, the fire of 1666, I think was the year, sometime back then. And London uh, burned to the ground, basically. And you're trying to rebuild that. And uh, each player kind of builds, uh, it's all through card play. You get these cards that start off very simple and very rudimentary. And you're trying to sort of uh, uh, run your city and, and, and build up different uh, boroughs and things like that and uh, just reconstruct everything. And then as you evolve, you get cooler and better cards and you start to evolve like a, a you know sewage system and, and you put in schools and you, you set up industries and all this stuff. And a lot of Martin Wallace games, I think, could fit into this. So specifically, like Brass is one that I'm thinking of, uh, and, I, and I also tried to like stay away from war games as well because I felt like they were kind of an IP uh, type of thing, it's similar to like Game of Thrones, where it's like, oh well, you want to talk about a game that's strategic with narrative, we can just do the whole coin series and be done. <laughs> so you know what I mean. So um, yeah, so I kind of ticked away from war games, which I didn't mention earlier, which I should have, but, uh, you know, you can take a lot of the Wallace war games and say, Hey, look, this church to strategy and there's a narrative because there's a beginning and middle end of the battle of the war and all that kind of stuff's going to happen. But, uh, London and I think brass as well, although to me, it's a little bit stronger with, uh, London because brass has like these weird quirks, which I like in terms of the gameplay and the strategy of it, but they kind of like, it just feels sort of like gamey. So it takes me out a little bit out of the narrative a little bit. Whereas London, nothing you really do to me feels very, very gamey. Not in the sense that it takes me out of out of the narrative. There's some, you know, obviously there's games and tricks and strategies that you do, which is always a trick with these games is like, okay, am I doing this to feel super gamey? And does, does it take me out of the theme? Does it take me out of the narrative? It's hard to say. Uh, but in London, it doesn't. Because uh, you have you sort of you're sort of living on and playing cards right on top of the cards that you just played, and sometimes you'll have cards that will stay up and stay up face up in this little like display in front of you, and you can kind of reuse them and kind of revisit them a little bit, and eventually they're going to go away. You can see again everything kind of evolve visually uh, in front of you. Uh, now the old the first edition actually had a board which you would fill up with these little tokens, so you can kind of visually see London slowly. Uh, you know, coming back up and sort of convert, converting from being dilapidated into, you know, refreshed and more modern and everything. Uh, you don't really get that with this one because everything's in cards, but you still get the same process of what's going on. And you can still see kind of London itself sort of be reborn in a way. So that is, what's that, number four? That's London. Okay. Number three and number two are really sort of close. And so number three is Eclipse. And this is, uh, yeah, this is great. This is heavy on the strategy, and I think you could easily substitute Twilight Imperium for this. Lots of strategy, lots of area control and politics and, you know, role selection in the case of Twilight Imperium. Uh, and it, I, personally, I like Eclipse better, but, you know, Twilight Imperium is, is fine. Some people like that better, whatever. But that kind of space 4X thing, any of these 4X games are really going to have a strong narrative. Because you're going to start with like nothing and you're going to evolve your civilization and you're going to become more powerful and more powerful or not. You're going to be crushed, you know, out of existence or anything like that. You're going to get new technologies. Each game, you're going to get try different technologies and different approaches. And Eclipse has that where it's very like technology driven. There's a lot of economy and then 
there's just random technologies that come out and you're going to try different strategies. You know, you can try the strategy to go get the missiles. You can try the strategy to get the AI computers and the shields and the, uh, you can build these kind of ships versus these other kinds of ships and so on. So there's a lot of, you know, stuff that you can kind of revisit and replay. And each time you play it, it's going to evolve and be different. And you're going to have definitely a good story at the end of it, especially in Eclipse when you play with the different, uh, well, this is going to be the theme of the next three games. But when you flip over the human side and you play with the different alien races, that's when it really gets interesting and it really gets narrative. Because the way that you evolve your civilization and the tricks and the special abilities and all the kind of uh, drawbacks and things that you have, I can think distinctly of a game I played it when I was playing the, I don't remember the name of it, but it was like this alien plant thing. And the way that you evolved is very cool and very interesting. And I really enjoyed playing uh, that game uh, with that with that race and all the different races. So you have that kind of sort of hook of being able to revisit it and explore it in a different way and tell a different story and sort of have a, a different sort of outcome based on that. So that's Eclipse. That's number three. Now, number two, which I, I rate slightly higher personally than Eclipse, uh, is Clash of Cultures. Uh, now, with the expansion, now, Clash of Cultures without the expansion wouldn't necessarily make the list. It wouldn't be this high up the list, I don't think, for me, because you don't have the different uh, nations and leaders and things that you can start off with. The narrative and story is always going to be kind of the same with just the base game. And like I said, it's got those elements of the four acts. You explore, you get new territory, the land's going to be kind of different every time. So you might be uh, resource poor or resource rich in the different kinds of resources you can get. So that's going to be an interesting kind of problem to solve each game. And then cooperating and trading with your neighbors possibly and all that kind of stuff's going to happen. But when you add the expansion in and you have these different abilities and it kind of, I don't want to say it forces you to, to play a certain way but it kind of cajoles you to try out these different strategies because similar to Eclipse, uh, they're not random, but you have this giant board of technologies that you can use. And there's a lot of sort of uh, paths to victory, if you will, that you can try. You can try some of different forms of government. You can try to be more warlike or more uh, you know, economic in your victory. Uh, and so these other leaders and civilizations, because you can be like Aztec or Rome or whatever, and you can they give you sort of benefits and bonuses that you can try out these different things. And they'll say, hey, you've got this bonus that'll allow you when you do a trading action to get extra gold or whatever. And so that'll kind of force you to do that. And I've seen games of Clash of Cultures with the expansions and very, very differently. We've had peaceful games where there's like, there's like one little meaningless skirmish. And then we have, you know, everybody scores a lot of points. And then we have like a bloody knockdown drag out you know, with, uh, because just because of the way people play. And whereas it, without the expansion, it kind of plays out like Eclipse does where you kind of evolve and you know, have little fights there and there and then you have a giant battle in the middle and whoever wins that probably is one of the two that was in the running to win, usually. So you have that kind of, you know, that's still a narrative thing. It's like in beginning, middle and end, you start off, you get beat up and then you have a giant, huge, uh, you know, space battle like in the movies or whatever and then whoever wins, wins. Uh, and it's kind of similar with Clash of Cultures without the expansion. Um, and that's fine. I think that's it's still fun. But uh, with the expansions, like I said, you have those extra elements where that story is going to be different uh, and has the potential to be different each time. So that's why I kind of bump up Clash of Cultures to number two, which leads me to number one, which is just kind of in the same vein as two and three. But 
there's it's not about uh, the four X bit. Now the number one is Forbidden Stars, which is out of print forever. I think. I don't know that we will ever see this game come back in print. Now, Fantasy Flight might do a new iteration of it because Forbidden Stars is loosely based on the engine for their StarCraft board game, which is out of print forever. And Forbidden Stars, of course, is based on Warhammer 40,000, which is kind of breaking my rule about being a base on an IP. But since Warhammer 40,000 is itself a game, then I'm going to go ahead and let it slide. <laughs> Because to me, this has the most narrative strategy mix. And yeah, it's a little bit on the random side. The last couple here, you know, Forbidden Stars, Classic Cultures, Eclipse, uh, Twilight Imperium I mentioned. There's randomness because there's, there's battles and dice rolling. But I'm going to make the stand that I think that they're still highly strategic. Even though we have dice and outcome-based luck instead of... Uh, you know, input luck versus output luck. Even though there's output luck. Now, input luck is when the game is like random at the beginning and then everybody's set and there's not really a lot of randomness after that. Output luck is when you do something and go, oh, did it work? <laughs> Which means like fighting for combat. So even though you've got that, I think that it's still within the bounds of control here that you can do a lot of probability and mitigating of luck. Not always going to work out for you, which is part of the story. Uh, but... Forbidden Stars has very, very interesting uh, battle mechanics and sort of evolution of your battle tactics because you have a small deck, again, deck building, of like 10 cards. And then as you sort of swap in new technology, you'll take cards out and add new ones in. So your battle tactics are going to change and evolve. And there's enough in there that they're going to change and evolve over the course of uh, you know different games. And uh, you can have, try different tactics. And there's four different races. And the... The way that those each of those decks work is, is asymmetric, and you're going to have different ways of kind of going about it. And you might kind of throw guys to the wind if you're playing the Chaos Marines, or you might be very sort of, uh, let's say, mobile and maneuverable if you're playing the Eldar and stuff like that. So these got these Warhammer 40k races. Now, the course of the game is not about going in and conquering territory and just like, you know, having the most stuff. It's not about that at all you have these uh, narrative little tokens that you put out and they're kind of drafted at the beginning of the game. And then you have to go and just kind of get at those objectives. So that might be one of your leaders has been captured or there's a, a key resource that you need for your particular empire. And you just have to go and, and get those things. And depending on the number of players, you have to get a certain amount. And it, it is dealt out in such a way that you you have this kind of shifting allegiance kind of thing almost or the shifting concerns and it feels a little bit more natural than a 4x where somebody conquers like the universe or conquers you know the planet in terms of a civilization game like everybody's civilizations in this case are still going to be there it's just that you have now sort of garnered like the sort of political or moral victory to sort of be on top for a little while. And I tied this one into Star Wars Rebellion, which is one that I thought definitely about putting on the list, along with like War of the Ring, which is another IP-based one that's what I thought of. Uh, uh, but because in Rebellion, it's not like you are trying to... It's not Rebel versus Empire and whoever conquers the galaxy that wins. No, that's not how it works. It's does the Rebels, uh, you know, they execute enough sort of terrorist uh, guerrilla options 
to, or excuse me, not options, operations to bring down the morale and then the empire collapses. And does the empire find the rebel base and delete it? <laughs> you know, so that's not a, that's much smarter, I think, in terms of the goal of the game. And War of the Ring has the same kind of thing. Yeah, there's armies and stuff there, but it's also, you know, we've got Frodo and, and uh, Sam trying to get the ring into Mount Doom. So you have these kind of pulling and in, in, in other threads that are going in terms of not just area control and that's it. And that's the main focus of the game. And so because I set aside the IP thing, so Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, those were those were excluded, <laughs> but I'm still keeping Forbidden Stars, even though it's based on Warhammer 40,000. Uh, but I, I'm just kind of using this just to illustrate these this point where the narrative in all three of these games, War of the Ring, Rebellion, and Forbidden Stars, is very strong because it's not just about like, I'm taking over everything and I'm going to be the big boss, Darth Vader, ruler of the universe, da da da, you know, that whole stupid thing. Like it's got this, those sort of underlying sort of supportive story elements on the backdrop of like a galactic or planetary conquest, you know, good versus evil, the sort of larger than life topics that are very cool. I think, I mean, let me just kind of talk in theory here. Like they're very cool when you're like 12, you know, good versus evil, very stark, no nuance, no subtlety. But then you have the underlying support of the real life lives that come and go and blink in and out of existence behind all of that. And I think Forbidden Stars, War of the Ring and Rebellion uh, kind of get at that. And Forbidden Stars kind of marries that very nicely in that Warhammer world where it's like, we really want to go get this thing over here because our weird leader dictator fascist guy that all the leaders in the Warhammer world are want us to do that. <laughs> so we're going to go do that and get this other one. And then, okay, we got our thing. We won for now. And now we're going to keep going and we'll play again tomorrow. And it'll be a completely different sort of objective that we're going after. And it's kind of a never ending cycle of things. Uh, so I think that kind of suite of games, uh, forbidden stars, uh, Rebellion and uh, War of the Ring. They all kind of fit in that same category of dynamic, epic backdrop. And then there's little bitty stories that are kind of being told against that. And that's an interesting spot where like board games can live. Uh, you know, if you play a role-playing game, the narrative is the game, all right? It's the thing. It's you. you you're going through each thing, uh, each sort of instance. And it's very, it can be very... Uh, uh, microscopic in a lot of ways in terms of you know all the things that you're doing whereas if you pull back into like an abstract game all the way up to like chess you're like a super high level not real level it's all it's, it becomes math you can like you kind of drag this up above the table and you're like way up in like this ethereal math thing which is fun but then you know where do you do that so i've always had this thing i talked with uh, my buddy jeff uh from uh uh, the long view you see the long view about this and the sort of sort of the level of the game because all of these games can be really immersive like you can play chess and be totally immersed i mean i remember playing checkers with my grandfather uh, he taught me how to play checkers when i was little and i've been totally immersed in that game and you know you can play a role-playing game and be totally immersed in your character and these board games can sometimes they're they're very mathy so the immersion is a different kind of immersion than the narrative side but, you know, the board games have an interesting thing where you can be very, uh, well, all tabletop games, I mean, uh, where you can be immersed in sort of the strategy and the story at the same time. Like, how do you pull that off? Because I think uh, the human brain, I don't know if, does it operate like that? Like, I'm just, you know, how do you operate? Because 
even let's say I'm playing Kalis, I'm like super number crunchy. I'm like, if you do this before me, then I need this, and then I got to do this, and then two turns later, I can get the big blue building and win. Or, okay, that's good. So you work that out. And then in my brain, I'm like, oh, look at this village. Look at it. It's evolving. There's the lawyer there and the architect. Oh, look at their little couple walking down the street. You know, like, I don't know. Like, you know, this, that kind of stuff happens. You can see all that kind of stuff and that narrative bit. So getting back to my point with Jeff, is you have these games that are sort of uh, above the table. Like, it's all face-to-face communication. Think of like One Night Ultimate Werewolf, these social deduction games, uh, playing poker, bluffing each other. It's very much human-to-human, very much in the real world. Uh, you know, you're, you're reading each other and all that kind of stuff. So that's all above the table. And then you have kind of the on-the-table stuff, the math stuff. You're, you're, you're parsing this sort of interesting-looking spreadsheet to figure out... Uh, how to win. And so you, you kind of bounce between that. So you might be saying, you look Billy in the eye in some of these strategy games, and you're like, oh, I think he's trying to take over uh, New Hampshire this turn or whatever. <laughs> and then you, can, then you look back at the board, so you go from above the table to on the table, and then you kind of you know use the math to get it. And then sometimes you get under the table, and that's when you don't see the table anymore, and you see the story, you see it evolve. And you you are you're not looking at each other. You're not even looking at the table. You're looking at something in the back of your brain, on the back of your eyeball that you're imagining. And these little pawns and models and miniatures and tokens and cubes are pushing and triggers in your brain to help you visualize something that isn't there. And so that's why you have like above the table, on the table, and then sort of under the table. Like it sucks you into the world. You're under it. You know, you're in the upside down or whatever. Um, and so the game that can live sort of on the table and under the table is very interesting and hard to pull off. And I think like Rebellion and Forbidden Stars and War of the Ring and even like Kalis and some of these other games, uh, Eclipse and London, they can kind of do that. Um, now to do all three is tough <laughs> because you've got to have a game that is going to interact with each other and immediately you're usually going to break each other out of the immersion uh, unless you buy into it. Uh, but then, you know, role-playing games throwing a weird wrinkle to that. Anyway, so that's kind of an interesting concept. And I was glad a lot of people brought this up uh, last time when I was asking for topics. I don't remember what the three topics were or four topics. But this was one that was suggested as, hey, do this. And this has been suggested to me a few times. Um, so I'm happy to kind of walk through that and figure that out, you know. Because a lot of times story and theme, I think... Like, I think you kind of take it for granted, like, that Euros don't do that. Like, a Euro, like a London and a Kalis. So it's like, eh, the theme. Yeah, I mean, yes, the theme is there, you know? Um, it's tricky, though. It's, 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 it's really weird. I think co-ops and stuff have an easier time. Role-playing games have an easier time. When you're competing, there's just so many things that can break you out of the theme and break you out of the narrative because you're like, oh, hold on, I got to do a little math hang on, got to do some math, you know, or you got to like interact with each other in sort of outside the magic circle. You'd be like, Billy, don't you screw me on that, Billy, because I need that, you know, so that kind of stuff, then it, became, it starts to sort of pull you up out of the table, right? You're, you're sucked out. And first you were under it, now you're on it, now you're yelling at each other, saying, don't you take that, I need that, you know, hopefully in a friendly way. <laughs> and, you know, so 
it's a real tricky sort of uh, fluctuation in this kind of medium of bouncing up and down between like the upside down, let's call it, and this you know imaginary world up into math and then looking at each other as people and, and reading your facial expressions and noticing the sweat running down somebody's cheek or something. Uh, so it's an interesting thing. That's why, you know, games are really weird and really interesting that they can kind of uh, try to get at all these different sides and all these different aspects. Um, yeah, and that's, you know, that's why I keep coming back to it. You know, it's like starting to ramble, but I think you guys are getting kind of the vibe I'm trying to put out. So that is that. And so I will look forward to uh, the next podcast. Definitely will be a hopefully pretty comprehensive coverage of some of the fun stuff I saw at Gen Con and some of the new games and I'll have pictures to go with it and uh, have some maybe some cool stories or something to talk about and if you see me at Gen Con please say hello and uh, and that's fine and uh, I'll be running all over the place it's going to be a zoo I'll be looking forward to playing games and stuff with people as well um, you know like in the evenings and things uh, but uh, yeah I'm looking forward to it it's been a couple of years and I'm excited and uh, okay Everybody take care. Okay, bye.